0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 345. It's titled, Investing in Water. A couple years ago, I received an email from a listener that owned 25 shares of water rights in southwestern Colorado in the Four Corners area where the states of Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah meet. Her rights weren't attached to any parcel of land. They were senior rights, or sometimes called golden rights, in that they predated the Colorado River Compact of 1922 by several decades. The water was from snowmelt from the San Juan Mountains. The Colorado River Compact is an agreement dating back to 1922, among seven U.S. states in the Colorado River Basin. It governs how the water from that river is allocated. When the agreement was set up, the Colorado River Basin was divided into an upper basin consisting of 7.5 million acre-feet per year of water, about half of which went to Colorado, 23% to Utah, and then lower allocations to Wyoming, New Mexico, and just a small amount to Arizona. The lower basin was also allocated 7.5 million acre-feet of water per year, with California getting 59% of that lower basin allocation, Arizona 37%, and Nevada 4%. There is an additional 1.1 million acre-feet in surplus that goes to the lower basin plus 1.5 million acre-feet to Mexico. 1922 was a long time ago. Today, there are more than 40 million people in two countries that depend on the Colorado River. The Colorado originates in the western slope of the Rocky Mountains. Major tributaries to the Colorado include the Green River, Gunnison, the San Juan River, where this particular listener had water rights, and then major cities depend on it. Denver, Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Tucson. The U.S.'s two largest hydroelectric plants, the Hoover Dam and the Glen Canyon Dam, are also on the Colorado River. Arizona, where we live most of the year, gets a significant percentage of their water from the Colorado River via the Central Arizona Project, which is the largest aqueduct system ever built. It has pumps that lift the water 3,000 feet. There are 15 miles of tunnels and 300 miles of open canal. The Central Arizona project ends in Tucson, where excess water is let loose in the desert west of Saguaro National Park and then it floods down into the aquifer. The process is known as water banking it refills the aquifer and the water is stored there. The problem with the 1922 Colorado River Compact is the amount of water allocated, about 17.5 million acre-feet, is much more than the river actually produces. Certainly today, but even then, Eric Kuhn and John Fleck, in their book On the Colorado River found that three different studies during the 1920s suggested that the natural flow of the Colorado River was between 14.3 million acre-feet and 16.1 million acre-feet less of what was allocated as part of the Colorado River Compact. So we have what is known as paper water, these legal water rights, access to water, and then the actual water itself, the wet water. At the same time, we have a major drought. The current drought in the Colorado River Basin is D4 category. That's the designation that's supposed to happen every 50 to 100 years according to Becky Bollinger, who's the Colorado's assistant state climatologist. Yet the Colorado River Basin has had three D4 droughts in the last 20 years, 2002, 2018, and 2021. Bollinger said the droughts that we are seeing are becoming that much more severe because of the temperature component. They're warmer. This listener, back in 2019 when she sent that email, was trying to decide whether she should continue to hold on to these water rights, which were worth about $5,000 each, were about $125,000, or should she sell them? It was a difficult predicament because water was becoming more scarce, which meant the water rights were becoming more valuable because in an area that gets 12 inches of rain a year or less, unirrigated cropland isn't worth as much. And so the existing farmers want access to that water. On the other hand, with the drought, there's the potential that there wouldn't even be enough water for those particular water rights. So the farmer or the other entity that bought them wouldn't actually get the water, even though they paid for the water rights. What we're seeing in the Colorado River Basin is because of warmer temperature, there's more rain and less snow, which reduces the snowpack. There is reduced soil moisture due to higher temperatures. There was an editorial recently in the Los Angeles Times titled, There Is No Drought. And their point was, at least in California, the state is getting as much precipitation as it ever has. It's just more sporadic. And the precipitation falls at different times and in different ways. And the infrastructure isn't really set up for that. This listener sold her water shares in the Four Corners regions. She said she thought about it for a while and finally decided that water rights are an exception to the general rule that scarcity increases value. The water rights are scarce, but so is the water, and the water could be cut off. She pointed out that this year, water rights in that same Four Corners area that were junior to the ones that she owned only got 4% of their allotment. There is a major drought in the southwestern U.S., the Colorado River has much less water. The reservoirs are less, significantly lower. In April 2019, President Donald Trump signed into law an act that authorized the U.S. Department of Interior to implement the Colorado River Drought Contingency Plan. This was a plan that the seven states agreed on which cuts that they would take if Things got so severe with regard to the reservoir levels at Lake Mead and Lake Powell. There are definitely cuts happening. That particular drought contingency plan only goes through 2026, which means there needs to be another agreement. Now, things seemed really dire to me as I looked into this. And then I was surprised by this fact Arizona is using the same amount of water about 7.1 acre-feet that it did back in 1957, even though the population has increased by 6 million. How could that be? Well, 74% of water usage in Arizona is for agriculture. There has been less agriculture demand over the past decades, even as the population has grown. In 2018, Arizona generated about $4.2 billion in agricultural receipts, with the highest valued commodities being lettuce, dairy products, and livestock. It's about 1.7% of gross domestic product, the dollar value, the output produced in Arizona, the goods and services, less than 2% agriculture, but it consumes 74% of the water. And much of that water is from the aquifer, what Grady Grammage Jr., former president of the Central Arizona Project's Board of Trustees, called fossil water, because much of it has been there for millennia. It's prehistoric groundwater. In 1980, the Arizona legislature passed the Groundwater Management Act that was focused on the Phoenix and Tucson area but essentially didn't touch anywhere outside of Pima and Maricopa County, which means anybody can come and use the groundwater. One paper I read that I'll link to likened it to the unregulated Wild West of groundwater use, a tragedy of the commons, because it just has this reasonable use doctrine, which means it just has to be used for something like agriculture. At this point, so much groundwater is being used that the water table is plunging, which means households that rely on wells in rural areas often see their wells go dry and they have to dig even deeper wells. And you're seeing riparian areas are being diminished because there's so much less groundwater. You see the same thing in New Mexico, another one of the Four Corners states. In New Mexico, agriculture is about a $3 billion industry, but less than 3% of GDP, yet 76% of water use is for agriculture, particularly for pecans, dairy, and cattle, which use a tremendous amount of water. The pecan tree is not a tree set up for the desert, but farming can be very profitable in the desert southwest because the weather is very predictable. If there's a source of irrigated water, then you don't have to worry about freezing or other major weather calamities, as long as the water's there, which is why foreign corporations have been buying up land in the desert southwest for years to raise cattle and pigs and alfalfa to export. About 97% of the earth's water is in the ocean salt water. Another two and a half percent is locked in the polar ice caps, which means only about 0.5 percent of all water is fresh water. In the western U.S, the water is overallocated. There's too much water promised in the form of water rights compared to the amount of water that flows down the Colorado River. Farmers prefer places like the desert Southwest because of the predictable and reliable source of water with most of that water used for agriculture. Water rights are very political. If it comes down to there not being enough water, my sense is even an owner of a senior water right, because so much water is used for agriculture versus the amount of economic value added by those farms, that their allocations will be cut. And this isn't just a U.S. issue. This is a global issue. Temperatures are rising around the globe, which means the ground doesn't hold as much water. It evaporates faster. We see more extremes in water, areas of drought, areas of flood. Brazil right now, a country of 212 million people, is facing their biggest water crisis in the past 91 years, according to Energy Minister Bento Albuquerque. And Brazil... 70% of its energy mix depends on hydroelectric. So if the rivers go low, then there isn't even power. Water investing isn't necessarily straightforward because people deserve access to water for drinking. It seems a little skewed. Areas where there's less water traditionally been heavily used for agriculture, but the value added from that agriculture isn't as great relative to The other uses in that desert area, particularly, let's say, from tourism. So when we look at options for water investing, certainly water rights is one way to do that. Like this particular listener had water rights for for decades, and then she sold them. But because allocations for water rights can be cut, they might not necessarily be the best investment. That's something that Michael Burry, the hedge fund manager that was profiled in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, he came to that conclusion also. He pointed out that water is political and litigious. He said, transporting water is impractical for both political and physical reasons. So buying up water rights did not make a lot of sense to me unless I was purchasing a greater full theory of investment, which was not my intention. What became clear to me is that food is the way to invest in water. That is, grow food in water-rich areas and transport it for sale in water-poor areas. The desert southwest is not a water-rich area. I don't know if Michael Burry has investments in farms in the desert southwest, but owning farm ground in more water-rich areas does make sense. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. was just there. could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the US, Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So, Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. We discussed farm investing in episode 334, How to Invest in Farmland, and went into great depth as to what drives the return on farmland investing. We didn't discuss water security much in that episode, but certainly if you're using one of the crowdfunding agriculture platforms, to buy farmland, be very wary of where that source of water is coming from, particularly if it's in the Southwest or really anywhere in the Western U.S. that's more arid because of these water rights issues. One could invest in water rights as a way to invest in water. One could invest in farms and farmland. But the most common way to invest in water would be through publicly traded water technology, and water infrastructure stocks. There are a number of ETFs and mutual funds that invest in water. The largest is the Invesco Water Resources ETF. PHO is its ticker. It has about $1.7 billion in assets. The expense ratio is 0.6%. It's 98% exposed to U.S. companies and fairly concentrated. It seeks to track the NASDAQ OMX U.S. Water Index. But there's only 38 holdings in the ETF, and 62% of its assets are in the top 10 holdings. It's done well. That particular ETF has returned 18.5% annualized over the past five years and 10.9% over the past 10 years annualized. It outperformed the SP 500 over the past five years, but lagged the S P 500 by about three percentage points over the past 10. A similar ETF, which is U.S.-focused, has, has had similar returns is the first trust water ETF, FIW is the ticker. It's a little less expensive, 0.54% expense ratio, so about six basis points less, a billion in assets, and has had similar returns, also very concentrated, 38 holdings. A more global approach would be the Invesco S&P Global Water ETF, CGW. It also has a billion in assets and expense ratio of 0.57%. It tracks the NASDAQ OMX Global Water Index. Because it's global, 53% of its allocation is in the U.S., 49% non-U.S., a little more diversified, about 49 stocks. Performance? 14.6% 14.6% annualized over the past five years and 11.2% annualized over the past 10 years. The water indices that these ETFs track are made up of companies that derive most of their revenues from creating products designed to conserve and purify water for homes and businesses and industry, or they can even invest in companies involved in wastewater treatment. I tried to find a water investment that was a little less concentrated. The best one I could find was the Calvert Global Water Fund. It's a mutual fund. The ticker is CFWAX. It's more expensive, 1.2% expense ratio, about $600 million in assets. It tracks the Calvert Global Water Research Index. So Calvert came up with their own index and then has a fund that tracks that index. There are 140 securities in the fund, so about three times as many as the other water ETFs, and 17.1% of its assets are in the top 10 holdings, It's about 51% in the U.S., 49% non-U.S. Performance hasn't been as good as the ETFs. For the five-year, it returned 12.3% annualized, so about two percentage points less than those other ETFs I listed, and the 10-year return was 9% annualized, about one to two percentage points less than the other options. So we don't know going forward, but the expense ratio is definitely higher for the Calvert Fund. It is more diversified, but its return has been less. Fidelity just launched a new water sustainability fund this year, but it's also concentrated 27 holdings 1% expense ratio. Now that is truly an active strategy. The thing about water investing, it's not a high growth area. Janet Glazer, who's the portfolio manager of the Fidelity Water Sustainability Fund, and and the ticker was FLOWX, said that the industry, the water industry, is expected to grow its revenue at 4% to 6% per year long term. Now that's not very high And it's not as if water investing is like utility investing, where you get a high dividend yield. Those U.S.-based ETFs only had a dividend yield about 0.5%, and the global water ETFs had a dividend yield of 1%. We have a low-yielding segment of the market, with the revenue growth isn't particularly high, and more direct investing in water. Water rights can be a bit of a challenge from a legal standpoint whether they're going to be worth as much in the future giving potential allocation cuts investing in agriculture is another way to invest in water but as we saw in episode 334 agriculture returns are very much tied to commodity returns I don't think I'm going to be making any direct water investments either through water rights or even in a water ETF to me it's it's not this necessarily compelling opportunity, particularly if there are, are water shortages. Now, I could be wrong, but given the concentration in the water ETFs, performance has been good, but they are expensive. The price-to-earnings ratio of the U.S.-based water ETFs is over 30. The global ETFs is 24. That's a pretty high multiple to pay for an asset class that's only growing at 5 to 6% per year. I started looking at water investing because I was concerned that I live in the desert, the Sonoran Desert for most of the year and the high mountain deserts of Idaho the rest of the year. And so water security personally is pretty important. When I saw that agriculture was taking such a high allocation to water in an area that isn't water rich, I felt a little better because I knew that that's probably where most of the cuts were going to be. Not that households shouldn't conserve water. And there are many areas in water-poor areas where even households aren't even metered for water. Our house in Idaho Falls, we could use as much water as we wanted. It wasn't metered at all. And so there there (laughs) needs to be some basic conservation measures put in place. And obviously, farmers need to be assisted somehow if they are forced to transition out of agriculture because simply there's not enough water in some of these water-poor areas. So it's not a straight-up investment because of the uncertainty with the political climate and the need to reallocate this Colorado River Compact because of the persistent drought, which may be normal. And the allocation back in the early 20s was well above normal. We just don't know. But that's our discussion on water investing. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, becoming a better investor, there's two ways that can help with that. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's episode. I share the notes and research materials that I use to prepare it and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. When you sign up for the Insider's Guide, you'll get my free guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. This is a summary of the key points from my book by the same name. The second way I can help is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. There's over 1,000 Money for the Rest of Us Plus members, they continue as members because they get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style they can understand. Here's some of what you get with Plus Membership. Global multi-asset class portfolio examples. A monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you keep your emotions in check. An exclusive member-only podcast called Money for the Rest of Us Plus as well as an ad-free version of the regular podcast. And with both of those podcasts, you get written transcripts. Plus, membership includes best-in-class video lessons, portfolio-building tools and templates, as well as access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You'll be able to interact with other members in the member forum and ultimately get the tools and the community you need to feel confident in your investing Plus membership is a voice of calm and reason amidst the chaos. We'd love to have you as a member. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.